Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Alan Ruskin, Deutsche Bank Chief international strategist. Good morning to you, Alan, on this Payrolls Friday. Morning, John. What are you looking for? The estimate in our survey, 190,000 for the month of April. The call at Deutsche Bank? Uh, 160,000. Um, strong, basically, for this point in the cycle, really. I don't want to emphasize that it's you know weaker than the prior month or anything like that. It is, this is strong data all around. One minute into the show, I've got to get the juvenile question out of the way. Is good data good news today? Or is good data bad news? Uh, good question, as always, really. I think, you know, uh, we don't want too good a data, right? So we don't really want uh, strong enough data that it uh, tests the Fed's patience. Yeah? So a number, say, for example, like 275K, like the ADP number, I think, would be in the realms where people start to have to think, wait a minute, we're pricing in rate cuts when we maybe should be thinking about rate hikes. I thought I was in charge of juvenile questions. Well, I just thought I'd get it out of the way early. Okay, please continue. Federal Reserve speakers through the day, really, really busy, including Vice Chairman Richard Clarida. What do we need to hear from Mr. Clarida today? Uh, clarification, I hesitate to say, really. I think clarification of the comments that uh, Chairman Powell put out, really, in a way. So, you know, he took a very non sort of doctrinaire approach to things was a little fuzzy in terms of what would provoke a rate cut. Didn't want to get pushed into the terrain of saying, look here, if core inflation is below target for X number of months, etc., we'll have to respond. I think you're going to get the same message from uh, Richard Clarida, but I think it would be useful for the market yeah. to see they're on the same Alan page. Alan John nails it. He nailed it yesterday, frankly, as well, folks. I can't say enough, folks, how important this cycle of speeches is. Alan, are we one step away from the vice chairman or anybody else is going to say, you know what, this is all wrong. We're going to lift rates when we go next and we get a tantrum. I mean, that's the arch fear of institutional Wall Street. No, so I think we're not going to get there very quickly. Uh, not Certainly not today. I thought that if you got anything from Chairman Powell's uh, comments, it was very sharply neutral. I mean, he really said yeah. that not a, there's not a strong case for rate hike or rate cut. You know, that is very different, of course, from what's been priced in the marketplace, but it's also a long way from a rate hike. Well, what I'm looking for from the very long list of Federal Reserve speakers through today, there is a conference happening, the Hoover Institute Policy Conference. So look out for it all through the day. I believe that Mr. Clarida will be speaking at 11.30 Eastern time. Personally, what I'm looking for, Alan, is to whether there is any daylight between the chairman and the people closest to him, because there are some people out there listening that think there might be. Do you? Um, there might be some daylight to the extent that um, I think uh, both uh, Clarida and Williams, I think, take perhaps a somewhat more theoretical approach to things in terms of and, and, and sort of lay things out in theoretical terms in a way which uh, the chair, the chairman doesn't. So I think there's sometimes differences that come through there. They're largely nuanced. I don't think right now uh, yeah. they would have a different view on what policy should be. But as for signals going on in the future, yes, there's a, there's a, there's a hint of daylight. Ellen, you are so diplomatic. I thought you that was incredibly be, diplomatic. You should be at the State <laughs> Department with Mr. Pompeo. Let me translate what Sir Alan Ruskin just said. Powell's not a PhD economist. These guys have underlying theories. And Powell's basically saying, yeah, right. Okay. 
What is the theory of the PhD economists right now? Is it traditional Phillips curve? Is it completely data dependent? I mean, at a graduate level, what is their theory right now? I think the problem, Tom, is that the theory in terms of creation of inflation has nowhere better to really turn than some sort of output gap framework. But as we know, the Phillips curve looks extraordinarily flat. Uh, we may be at the point where there's a little kink, where it gets a little you know, steeper, but we don't know. And that's all we have to hang our hat on, in a sense. The and that, that, that's a big, big problem. Well that's said. what we talk Extremely well <laughs> said. But the issue I've here, I've here, and Pharaoh's better at this than I am, is the output gap has plug-ins. Some of them are countable and tangible. And what Chairman Powell, Chair Yellen, and the rest are dealing with is so many of those plug-ins are almost intangible, aren't they? Maybe even worse than that, Tom. I think uh, we do a better job using inflation to forecast the output gap and where we are in the output gap than we use the output gap to forecast inflation. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, let's talk about the reaction function after the Fed. You've pointed out yourself we spent months looking at this evolving policy reaction function that places greater emphasis on a symmetric inflation target. That's why so many people were expecting a rate cut because they thought the Federal Reserve was setting us up for slowly adjusting the reaction function of policy. Do you think that is still the effort, the underlying effort of the FOMC to take us somewhere in that direction, Alan? I think there's some genuine attempt to emphasize the idea of symmetry. I think the symmetric argument made an awful lot of sense at the turn of the year, in so much as I think the Fed looked over the abyss and they saw, wait a minute here, we've got inflation that is barely a target really and now we have, we could be into the downswing and that's the peak and uh, you know therefore we're definitely going down to zero rates again inflation is really peaked and i think that's that's a problem the zero bound on rates is really you know creating a lot of the problems so underpinning the big rally in risk assets was undoubtedly the federal reserve pivot Back three, four months ago, there was a belief that maybe the Federal Reserve was making a policy mistake by hiking interest rates. Fed backed away. I'm going to test the extreme end of this narrative right now, Alan, so forgive me. Do you think there are some pockets of this market, groups of investors substantial enough to have an impact that believe that if the Fed does not cut interest rates, that is equally a policy mistake? Have we gone that far now? Put it this way, I think there's enough uncertainty out there just talking to clients and there are enough people who think that the Fed did signal that the next move would be a rate cut, uh, obviously premised on inflation remaining low, that I think they'd be quite disappointed if you didn't get that. So, so if that changes, if in the coming days, months, the market has to readjust the reality that the next move may well be an increase, what happens to this market? How does price adjust? How do risk assets respond to that? Well, I think uh, we're first going to adjust to the idea of neutrality, really. So Fed is on hold for a long period of time. If we jumped from rate cut expectations to rate hike expectations, I think that would be usually disruptive. But I think if we slowly take back the 15 yeah. beeps of rate cuts that we have for yeah. 2019, then I think okay. it's not going to be too disruptive. I, let's go to synodal, synodal dampening functions. If Draghi has a dampening function where he does nothing out to whenever, if you're suggesting Powell and whoever after him has a dampening function of rate out to forever, is that French for lethargy? I mean, are we really talking here about a lethargic policy and a lethargic American economy? Look, uh, I think actually one of the big mistakes of the dots was the idea that you hiked interest rates and then the dots sort of, you know, 
peaked um, elevated and, yeah, and stayed at equilibrium yeah, yeah, yeah. we know that the fed funds doesn't behave like that there's a cycle out there we go uh, up and we overshoot and we go down and undershoot and yeah. i don't think the cycle is going to be any different really hey, um, um, so there's a cycle out there great to catch up with you this is wonderful as always. thank you Alan folks Ruskin, that was a little sophisticated deutsche I mean, bank chief international strategist there, on sorry. this payrolls friday writes in the Wall Street Journal today, Nariana Kochalakota of Rochester and Minneapolis writes of Stephen Moore today. Why don't we listen to our conversation yesterday to Mr. Moore? This is going to be probably a three-month process. So a lot, you know, what, what the situation today, uh, I think is going to be a lot different three months from now when I go before the Senate and, and the Banking Committee and the full Senate. So uh, I'm not too concerned about this. Um, I, I actually think if we can steer the, uh, the discussion uh, away from things I wrote 20, 25 years ago and more towards what I believe on in, in terms of the economy and Fed policy and how to create growth and stable prices, I think I'm going to win a big majority. Stephen Moore, if we fill the punch bowl to the peak, if we get half or all of the rate cut that the president demands, what will that do to dollar stability and what will that do to price stability? Now, it's a good question. I think I could make a case for having, uh, you know, uh, repealed the, the rate hike in uh, that took place in December. I remember, I was the one who one of the first people, although there were many who called that a, a tragic mistake. And of course, now everyone acknowledges that it was a big mistake. I, you know, I would probably be in favor of repealing that rate hike, which was what I think 25 basis points. I don't, I'm not so sure I, I agree with the White House that we should cut rates by an entire percentage point. I mean, I don't I just don't see the case for that right now. Stephen Moore yesterday and, of course, events afterwards, John, I, I don't know, two hours later, an hour and a half later. Not uh, even. He was either he stepped aside or. Or the president asked him to step aside. Whatever. We'll go away from that soap opera. We're advantaged to do it now with Jeffrey Sachs. He's university professor, Columbia University, has any number of topics we could talk on for the next three hours. So we're going to squeeze it in here in three minutes. What would happen if the president uh, got his 100 basis point rate cut? Take us into the classroom. Freshman year, you know, you're there. You've got a young Turk up at Harvard, Alberto Elisina or Michael Berta or whatever. How do you teach a 100 basis point rate cut? Well, you don't put the Fed in the hands of politicians and expect to come out with a stable economy. So that's the basic point. Uh, we need a professional Fed. We need an independent central bank. And we need monetary policy that is not at the whim of, of any politician, frankly. Do you think we're putting something that is widely believed to be quite precious? Do you think we're putting that under risk at the moment? Well, the disdain for this institution that President Trump has shown uh, in his direct attacks, in his uh, flagrant uh, violation of the norms of how monetary policy is considered and should be discussed, and in, and in his uh, proposals for Fed governors has been really dismaying, but not unlike what we're seeing across the board in our federal institutions where they're falling apart in a lot of ways because they're treated with disdain, because the people that are filling them are not qualified to fill them, uh, because everything has become hyper-political rather than professional. Before Kane and Moore, we actually had some quite 
conventional nominations from this administration. In fact, it was widely considered by most of our guests that they had nominated really good candidates for the Federal Reserve. Two of them didn't even get a hearing. Has something changed within the administration where we've gone from the likes of Goodfriend and others to the likes of Kane and Moore? I am not an insider to this administration, to say the least, but uh, it does seem uh, that uh, the president right. is uh, more more uh, in uh, in control. He's not listening to advisors. Right. Uh, it, I presume that this is uh, what this is, uh, but definitely we're seeing a deterioration in policymaking in general. I don't, this is right. not a secret. There is no policymaking. Okay, there's whims, there's tweets, and... and okay, uh, Jeff, this is important. What John brings up is really, really important. Take us into the American Economic Association meetings. And the fact is Jeffrey Sachs is on the same page with John Taylor of Stanford or Marvin Goodfriend at Carnegie Mellon much more than people think. The media loves to show the liberal and conservative polarity, but Marvin Goodfriend is one example would be some form of a centrist a candidate, wouldn't he? I think the key actually is professionalism, because when you have trained professionals that are not hacks, they sit around, they talk, they analyze the data, yeah. they may not agree on everything, but it really is the way that a complex $20 trillion economy should be addressed, not uh, mm -hmm. by these wild swings of whim. And it's a little bit frightening what's happening to our institutions across the board. Again, I think the Fed is uh, just right. one dramatic case. It's a stark case because the world depends on Fed stability yeah. because we have seen uh, already uh, what goes wrong when uh, monetary policy goes wrong. The whole right. world goes into crisis. We're out of time. What we'd love to do, Professor Sachs, is John and I would love to get you back for an entire hour to talk about five, six, or seven themes. I will be absolutely delighted. You, you know you. that. I will be happy to be here anytime. Jeff thank Sachs, you, thank, thank you so you. much. University Professor, Columbia University. know this Ellen Zentner Morgan Stanley joining us right now Ellen like all of us has an email incoming box that has like 85% junk emails John Farrow just got the mother of all junk emails John this is brilliant and it really points to a Farrow like future this is beautiful this is from LinkedIn and, and every now and then they send me my top job picks these were my, these were my top Morgan job Stanley picks. listed sometimes Morgan Stanley comes up top <laughs> job picks for you this week private equity associate strategy associate McKinsey, et cetera, et cetera. And then Governor of the Bank of England <laughs> come, comes up on my top job picks because uh, I've got yeah. three company alumni that work there. I mean, come on. What's the algo behind this? The algo behind that, I don't know. It's Ellen Zentner's fault. Let's bring in the chief economist uh, of, of Morgan Stanley. Ellen Zentner doing a wonderful job on framing the path of the American economy. And once again, dead on about the sustained low rates and inflation as well. Ellen, you got an opportunity for John Farrell this morning at Morgan Stanley? Yeah, you know what? John, come see me. 
you can work for me uh, can anytime. I do, I'll do the summer yeah. internship yeah. with you guys. Yeah, you can, you can work for me. Right. <laughs> Ellen, I want to be my coffee boy. I don't mind being oh, that, there Ellen. We go. I'll coffee. be Ellen's coffee boy I'm for a couple you, of days. I'm calling you for the rest of the show today. Hey, coffee boy. <laughs> Ellen, um, let me get this out of the way because there's so much important to talk about. You're, you're one of the great market economists out there. How do you synthesize the struggle we are in filling a slot for governor of the Federal Reserve System? How do you in the trenches uh, uh, process what we observed yesterday? Uh, well, you know, I look at it from the 30,000 foot level, so I try not to get dragged down into, uh, you know, discussions of whether someone is qualified or not to be a board governor. Um, you know, and, and sometimes you can sit back and look at this with amusement, and sometimes you can look at back at it in, in horror and watch as it as it plays out. But um, certainly some relief that the nomination um, was pulled. Uh, you know, I'd like to see more qualified people uh, nominated uh, to the board governors. Uh, I think it's not necessary. We've been working too shy, two positions shy of a full uh, uh, deck for, you know, a decade now. Um, so it's not necessary to get two more board governors appointed. Um, so we don't have to rush it. Um, but I would like to see actual viable nominations of people that could actually do the job. Um, you know, because the the questions I get from clients that I field most often is, how would this person shape uh, monetary policy? Uh, you know, would they get on the board and just immediately the stance on rates would change? And and we're sort of missing the forest for the for the trees. You know, th there's a reason why monetary policy is made by committee, so that no one person uh, has outsized uh, influence. And so, you know, if we if we do get someone that that maybe not as so qualified to be a board governor, at least we can take comfort in the fact that they'll be in discussions with a, with a broad committee uh, and it's not just solely up to them. Well, Ellen, I think you've touched on something really important. The process and the system in place at the moment works. It stops people from who are unqualified getting on to the Federal Reserve. And even if they do get there, it's going to be very difficult for them to have influence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's what we've seen play out um, with both the Kane nomination um, and the Moore nomination. Um, you nominate and give a period of, of time for people to react to that, and, and you're able to gauge whether they actually have a chance of passing a, a Senate, uh, getting to Senate confirmation. And if it looks like it's just a no-go, then either the president or the, the nominee themselves pull that nomination. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, sometimes that's for good reasons, you know, in the case of, of Kane and Moore, sometimes it's for uh, not so good reasons, like the case of Nellie Lang, who would have been a phenomenal board governor, uh, but would not have been able to pass, uh, you know, the gut word that she was not able to pass Senate confirmation. So you certainly don't want to continue go going down that road. So if your clients had confusion about the prospect of a, a Kane-Moore Fed, how do they feel about the Fed we have got? What have we learned this week? And what do you tell them about what Chairman Powell did just a couple of days ago? Yeah, you know, so I think it's a mixed bag for clients. I mean, I have uh, you know clients that I talk to that are frustrated um, at mixed messages that they feel like they're getting out of the Fed. Uh, you know that uh, that, that um, you know, Evans and Kaplan sending a, a message that inflation is low and they could be considering insurance cuts. You could throw Clarita into that mix, and then you get Chair Powell that sounds like they are so far from consensus on it now. 
uh, you know, if you're a Fed watcher, we knew that there was n- they were nowhere near consensus on an insurance cut. And if you if you step back and just read uh, or listen to what all four of those men have said, um, they're all saying the same thing. Inflation is low. We're frustrated by it. If it persists at, at these very low levels or moves lower, we mm-hmm. would certainly be concerned and would need to adjust policy around that. All four sent a consensus, uh, a consistent message. Um, I think what I've noticed is missing from Powell's, uh, uh, from the conversations that Powell has with us and with the markets is that, and this goes back to when he was communicating around the balance sheet as well, he's missing that standard boilerplate language that monetary policymakers historically have used. Those if-then scenarios. Here's our baseline. Here's what we expect to do. If the data comes in worse than we expect, we would we would cut. If the data comes in better than expect, we could hike. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a simple, it's a fact. It, it's boilerplate language, yeah. but just saying that would give people more comfort. On this job day, Ellen Zentner with Morgan Stanley is with us. Ellen, uh, there's a point with every frontline economist where they become, oh, who's that? And with you long ago and far away, it was productivity analysis, the efficiency of the American economy. So if I look at capital dynamics, labor dynamics, and everything else piled into this new improved productivity that we see, 100% of my audience doesn't buy it. They don't buy the new improved productivity. Are we more efficient now? Are we more productive? Or is it just smoke and mirrors? Well, the way I would put it, Tom, is that we're we're more productive, but in a way that it's not counted in the in the data, like the old productive days of yore, where well, who we are we productive? No, come on, see, but, but Ellen, is so, it a, is it a gilded age, and we're being more productive for Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett? Well, yes frankly. So what we're seeing is a lot of the CapEx that's going on, a lot of the capital de- capital deepening is all in software. It's in AI. It's in improving warehouse processes uh, and the like. And we just don't produce as high of a rate of productivity when we're investing in services or it's coming from the service sector as it is when, we're coming, when it's coming from the manufacturing sector. And so what I would call a new day for productivity or the fact that productivity is picked up, it's picked up to what is a very low underlying trend, and it's just the the truth of it. Um, We are a service sector-led economy, and the service side of the economy is not associated with very high rates of productivity. Now, on the one hand, that's how we can get so many people employed, uh, that we we have such a low unemployment rate, and we're creating 200,000 jobs a month on a pretty steady basis. You know, we're we're doing that because productivity is is not you know, uh, two three percent like it was when we were manufacturing led economy. Productivity, the run rate for productivity, we believe is yeah. more one percent. Ellen, before we let you go, we need the Morgan Stanley Guide to payrolls yes. in about thirty four minutes time, please. What should we be looking for? So we're going to be focused on private payrolls. That's where everyone should focus their attention. We're looking for 194. That's a bit above consensus. Headline, there's no telling where headline comes in. There's going to be a census impact. Um, it could be 20,000 like Jim O'Sullivan, who's a fantastic forecaster, um, is expecting. It could be closer to 40,000 as we're expecting. But you've got to strip out any census effects over the next several months mm-hmm. and just look at private payrolls. And you see there's some of the granularity that the pros are looking at as we look at simple statistics. Statistics like the unemployment. Do you like milk with your coffee, Ellen? Wages. <laughs> almond milk. Almond milk. Just yeah. so I know. Oh, oh almond milk. Are you latte. kidding just, me? Just so I know. Yeah. You drink almond milk? Almond milk. Try any, it. Any Tom. sugar? You'll I, feel I sense, better. I sense you're not like, eating sugar. Having sugar. No, with this. absolutely no. no sugar. It's okay. evil. 
Sugar's evil. Finding out a lot about my boss, the, aren't I? No, the really bad news here, Coffee Boy, is Mrs. Keene is listening to this. Does she like there's, almond milk? There's, there's, a, there's a 55 gallon oil drum of almond milk in the refrigerator. Sugar's at evil. Home. We find out so much about this. Is like this is like Google. Program. I could see the IPO. <laughs> James Corman's going to do a secondary offering for Morgan Stanley, and Ellen's going to demand at the top. Sugar is evil. Ellen Zentner, thank you. Great to catch so up much. with you as always. Lovely to have you every job day. Thank Morgan you so much. Morgan Stanley's Ellen. chief U.S. economist. <laughs> Jeff Rosenberg, Senior Portfolio Manager on BlackRock's Systematic Fixed Income Team. Great to catch up with you, Jeff. Your first read of the payrolls report, please. Great to see you as well, guys. Uh, first read is, you know, it's a, it's a strong report. It continues to tell the story of strong growth in the labor market without pressuring inflation. That's a little bit of a weaker number, uh, 0.2 versus 0.3 expectations in terms of hourly earnings. Uh, year over year, 3.2%. So you have these strong numbers in terms of payroll growth without really pushing up the acceleration. Uh, I think this just continues a, a sequence of, of strong yeah. reports in the labor market and not really pressuring on the inflation. Tom, you mentioned a minute ago about you know the inflation narrative. I think Powell put a pin in that earlier this week, and certainly nothing out of this yeah. report is going to is going to raise concerns on that. Why is there an insatiable desire? You know, we always look at yield and price and that, but Jeffrey Rosenberg, the fact is, people are issuing paper, and the demand for it. I'm going to use a, a non-pro word is insatiable that keeps yields down. Let's begin with square one. Why is there an insatiable demand for fixed income paper? Well, there's a lot of reasons behind that, Tom. I mean, you you have a you have a supply demand issue, and it's it's not new. It's been going on for a long time, and it's not just about the U.S. This is about global savings. It's about a global demand for fixed income. That's a secular trend. Part of that is driven by demographics. Part of it is 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 driven by the lack of yield in the rest yeah. of the world pursuing zero and negative interest rate policies. It makes our yield well, levels very attractive. Do you have a yield? And I mean this seriously in that you're not in the forecasting business working at Buy Side BlackRock, but 2.56, and it feels like an economy that says 3.00 to me, and yet we're not there, are we? What's your, what's your call 12 months out on 10-year yield? So I, I think that what we are in in this environment, and I think the more important data around today's report is on the inflation side rather than the headline. Where is the debate? The debate is centered around the inflation outlook. Yeah. So today's a little bit helpful. It doesn't accelerate the inflation outlook, uh, and, it, and it certainly helps to stem some of the concerns about too little inflation. But that's the environment that we've been in and we've been talking about, and we'll talk about later today in the Hoover Institute, and we get the headlines from policymakers' discussion about changing the framework to how do you deal with very low inflation. In that kind of environment, the reason for such low levels of interest rates is there's a, an expectation that central bank policymakers are going to be much more yeah. willing to cut interest rates than they are to raise interest rates because of the fear right. of inflation going downward. And that's what's pushing downward interest rates. I think that as we get through, you asked 12-month outlook, as we get through this low level, 1.5% is where inflation is running. Our forecasts see that not 
in the near term, not in the next three months, but by the end of the year, we're going to be around one eight, one nine on that favored measure by the Fed core PCE. Right. And in that kind of environment, you could tick up modestly higher in terms of interest rates. Jeffrey Rosenberg with us. Jeffrey Rosenberg with us with BlackRock, and we continue. I can't say enough, folks. If you don't have a Bloomberg terminal, you will get one only for T Live Go. It is outstanding in the esteemed Scott Landman right now, writing there. Jeff Rosenberg, this puts the historic perspective on the moment. The jobless rate falls to a fresh 49-year low of 3.6%. That wasn't in your textbooks at Carnegie Mellon. What does a 3.6% unemployment rate mean to President Trump? Well, it's it's obviously very good news. Now, the 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 details around that unemployment rate you had a big drop in terms of the workforce, and you know some people will will certainly highlight, you know yeah. that may be technically uh, driven. But the fact is, is we are at historic low levels of unemployment, as low as they've been since the 1960s, and it's indicative of where this economy is. It's very strong labor markets, very extended cycle in terms of the economic expansion. But without the inflationary consequences that we saw in that last period of very low unemployment rates, mid-1960s inflation de-anchored and you had you know, the origin story of the Fed uh, you know, popping the bubble of inflation expectations. A very different story for very different reasons this time around. Yeah. But that's what the low unemployment okay. rate is telling you. You know, and then within T Live Go, Jeff Rosenberg, and I know you've been on T Live Go, written up with your comments many times. The gentleman Torsten Slack of Deutsche Bank, he's got a three uh, a three word sentence here of analysis. Powell was right. If Powell was right, why is he getting so much grief from the president of the United States? Well, uh, <laughs> he was wrong before he was right. Okay, you thank know, you. Wiley. Well said expected uh, that the December move was a policy mistake. So he was right to pivot, uh, I think is what Torsten's talking about. And, and that's that's what has occurred here. And that is correct. And you certainly see the market and the economy responding to the easing in financial conditions from the pivot from Powell back on January 4th after recognizing belatedly with the market's help uh, that the, the increase in, in December yeah. was, was misplaced. And Alan Zentner, our team, putting out uh, that Census Bureau blip here that we see this month. And private payrolls, as Ms. Zentner at Morgan Stanley mentioned, is important, was still a buoyant 236,000. We are thrilled Jeffrey Rosenberg's with us with BlackRock. This is a joy and this is a celebration. As you know, at Bloomberg Surveillance, we get in 472 books a day and another one comes in. Yeah, yeah. Another guy that's made it. Another book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the brilliant that we saw a year and a half ago. I love capitalism. An American story of Kenneth Langone with an image on the cover of a young T-shirted, holes ripped in his blue jeans Langone with his Home Depot shovel ready to dig a ditch a few years ago. We celebrate Ken Langone, I Love Capitalism, out for beach reading with a paperback out on I Love Capitalism. I can't say enough, Ken. The book was such a joy. It's almost James Clavel-like. It's all dialogue in all what you said to people. I want to start with something, and this goes to chapter one of your book, yeah. which is right now, and this is classic Langone, 
You've just said at your NYU medical school, these doctors need the way to finance off their backs. Tell us what you're doing to help the kids that are smart enough to get into NYU medical, how you're helping them with tuition. Well, it's very simple. We made a decision. It took us 11 years to raise the money to get there. But we made a decision that every kid we accept comes tuition-free, every single one of them, including the ones that haven't finished their studies. So if you've got two years or three years left, that's free too. Right. And we, we really felt like it was the right thing to do. More importantly, our nation is confronted with a shortage of roughly 120,000 doctors in the year 2030. That's only 11 years from now. Uh, uh, 60,000 primary care physicians, 25,000 pediatricians, and Mm -hmm. 25,000 OBGYN. These are fields that don't pay as well as some of your more demanding, like neurosurgery and uh, uh, dermatology and so forth. And it's 87,000 all in at NYU Medical Living Costs and all that subway fees, uh, bar fees, golf fees. It's more than it's, it's a lot. lot. It's a lot of money. Uh, tuition's about seventy thousand, seventy-two thousand. Okay. Yep. So you got to add on on top of that. You wandered into Bucknell, twenty-five hundred dollars a year, right? And and you know, for your parents, this was a huge stress. You know, within the time that we've got today, give us a window into what it was like the first day at Bucknell, where you were not one of the fancy kids. I remember on a Friday night, my first Friday night there, being in front of the library and looking out over the Buffalo Valley. And I couldn't believe I was there. Yeah. I, I was just, I, I was, it was something I never imagined would happen. What did you learn at Bucknell that helped you when you built Home Depot? How to get along with people. How to respect people. Uh, yeah, the studies, the academic studies are important, no doubt about that. But it was an environment where we, we were thrown in with each other. And it was one where you knew you would do better, the better you did in dealing with friends and mm-hmm professors and so forth. And uh, I can never, ever adequately express my gratitude to Bucknell for what it did for me. So Ken, one of the themes in your book is that free enterprise and capitalism is kind of the key to giving everyone a leg up and an opportunity. Right. Do you think that still holds today to the, maybe to the same degree? More so. More so. More so. We, today, we, we celebrate ownership. Uh, Home Depot, for example, and the number I love to brag about, we have, Please. Three, we have 3,000 kids that came with us, 18 years old, fresh out of high school, no college, started entry level in the parking lot pushing carts in. 3,000 are multimillionaires today. Capitalism works. Look where you guys are right here today. Look at Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> I mean, look, this, damn it, the system works. Is it, is it unfair at times? Yes. Is it brutal at times? Yes. Every time I've had a failure, it's brutal. Oh, okay. I'll go with that. Michael Bloomberg, folks, unfair and brutal. He is a principal <laughs> owner of Bloomberg LP in this and radio a hell of a guy <laughs> and one of the most philanthropic men on this earth. Well, okay. I want to talk about the business environment. We see 3M blowing up right now. I want to talk about complexity first. Nestle had to do a reorg. Unilever had to do a reorg. 3M has rolled over. It's really underperforming. Is there a point where a business becomes too complex? It just becomes too cute for its own good? No. Look. Styles and taste change. A a thriving business is dynamic. It changes with its market. 
Home Depot today is not the Home Depot of 42 years or 41 years ago. For example, we have a much greater emphasis on security products. There are, there are changes in construction styles. There are changes in, in fashion. We, if we don't change with the market, we be rendered, we're rendered obsolete. Mm-hmm. So the, the key, I mean, I'll give you a good for instance. Eastman Kodak no longer exists for one reason and one reason alone. Digital photography showed up, and they decided they wanted no part of it because they wanted to protect those little yellow boxes. Well, now they got nothing to protect. Kodak was one of the 50 most admired and invested companies in them. It was in the Nifty 50 in 1970, 50 great companies. Kodak's gone. Why? Management didn't change with the times. Management didn't change with its market. You go where your customer wants to go. You don't mm-hmm. go. You don't tell your customers this is where you're coming. Are we, are we seeing some of that now in just the U.S. retail landscape? You know, the Amazon effect, everything, e-commerce, yes. and yes. boy, it seems like some great names. Whether it's the Macy's of the world or whatever, really struggling. Look, convenience is becoming a much more important factor of life. And the other thing is. All this noise about content and television and streaming, people are spending more time at home. They don't want to go out and shop for bread or milk or hamburgers or whatever. Home Depot is spending $11 billion in the next three years on being relevant in online sales. How we do it, how we reach the customer, the convenience to the customer. So there's an example. The world has changed. Amazon was a pioneer. I want you to do an MBA right now. Uh, Paul Sweeney was at Fuqua down at Duke, and there's many others listening. Great school. All the different you know, MBAs right. guys right now. What does Ken Langone think of the word scale? It's so in right now. This word, it's like synergy a couple of years ago. We're scaling up. We need scale. You, I, I see the Langone face over there. I'm about ready to get hit between the eyes. Well, let me I'll give you a one number. Were scale. you going to name your book, I Love Scale? No. My, <laughs> the title I wanted was Capitalism and Me, A Love Affair. Okay. Because you know what? It really yeah. was, and yeah. it is. They thought it was a better top. Yeah, I love capitalism means it sells like Avengers. Well, Tell us hit, about scale. At uh, scale. <clears throat> Ten years ago, NYU had 67 neurologists on staff. Today we have 213 neurologists on staff. Why? Our market has grown and we're growing with our market. You've got to, the key to business is to make sure you're relevant to the market you're trying to reach. If you do that, you'll get scale. Home Depot this past year had $108 billion in revenues. That's scale. And look at what we're able to do. We're able to spend $11 billion in the next three years mm-hmm on technology. We couldn't do that if we didn't have scale. We're waiting for Lawrence Kudlow at the White House with John Farrell, but right now we are thrilled and honored to have with us. It's an American story. I love capitalism. Kenneth Langone, the hardcover, did extremely well, and he dashes out for beach reading the water-sealed paperback. <laughs> the Hamptons will be covered with no, paperback editions of Jersey I love Shore, And the Jersey Shore. Okay, Paul, jump in, please. So, Ken, you know, one of the things we've seen this year, 2019 has been billed by a lot of people as, gee, the year of the IPO. We've had right. so many big tech IPOs, right. but they're not all working. It seems like you take a look at some of these new technologies, the the ride-sharing company Lyfts, we're going to have Uber coming. Some of those are struggling in the marketplace. Is this the market saying, we need to see some path to profitability? You can't just give us some great pipe dream about a big market? No, the market's discreet. The market's going to look, I have a company that I invested in, 
a short four or five years ago called Shockwave with a technology for uh, the heart. Uh, and and it, it came public at around 16 bucks two months ago, and it's at $41 a share today. Why? It's, it's identified a market. It's, it's got the technology. And the belief is it will have significant growth because of what it does. One of the things we all need to have in life is the discipline of profits. For how long can you keep going back to the marketplace for capital to take care of the capital you've lost and eroded by virtue of losing money? You know, look, Home Depot today pays $5.44 a share in dividends. And by the way, as a reference point, if you bought our stock in 1981, the adjusted cost is four cents a share. Yeah. So do the math on right. your yield on your cost. I, I, we can only do that because we make money. You make profit. Lord Desai at LSC would profit. say it's about profit. You got to make profit. What does Ken Langone think about all the new Silicon Valley rage, which is an extrapolation of huge revenue growth, zero profit, zero cash flow, and out there somewhere will be profit one day? What do you think of those guys? Well, I think number one, the market is agreeing with them that the market they're addressing. Well, look at Fair. Look, look at look at Amazon. Take a look at Amazon's numbers. They're staggering. Stacking. Look at Google. Look at Mike. Look at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Look at uh, Facebook. They hit on something. At some point, the market's going to demand, "Hey guys, we've given you enough lead time. We've given you enough runway. Now, <clears throat> when are we going to start getting some money back?" I don't know when that happens. Right. Do you agree with Mr. Buffett that you can load the boat on Amazon right now? I did a chart today, two-decade regression of Amazon that extrapolated it out to, 20, mm -hmm. to 2039 when Ken Langone will join us 2039 <laughs> with a follow-up to I Love to Capitalism. I plan to be there. You plan to be there. But if I, it's going to be $78,000 a share as a log extrapolation. I'll be, 100, I'll be 104 years old. So That's good. I like it. But, but within that and, and out that far... Can you extrapolate out Amazon and feel good about the profit potential? Let me tell you what I know about Amazon. I had the good fortune to be invited to have lunch with Jeff Bezos, Frank Blake and I, the retired chairman of Depot, and I went out and had lunch with him about a year and a half ago at his home. He's got two critical ingredients to success. He's smart and he's humble, okay? And he hit on something that is exciting. Tell us about that. Well, online selling. The cloud. Look at the things he's a Look at his numbers. I mean, I mean it, it, this thing makes money. It coins money. But guess what? It's okay. always about the people. I want to fold this back into your book, I Love Capitalism, right. which is Amazon started in America. When I go to Paris, they desperately mm. want the entrepreneurship of Langone and Bezos mm. in Paris, everywhere else. What is it in the pixie dust of America that allows us to find a Bezos in a station wagon moving books? The incentive of succeeding that if we work our asses off, if we address an issue, if we have a human want that we've satisfied or a human need that we've addressed, and we do it on a cost-conscious basis, we'll make money. Now, let me tell you a very exciting thing about Home Depot and Apple. Apple, great company. <clears throat> Apple went public in December of 1980, and the aggregate return on Apple is about 42,000%. 
Home Depot went public in September of 1981, nine months later, and the aggregate return is 632,000%. Hamazon saws versus exotic devices. Find a need, the biggest thing that we did was to recognize the importance of the people that work with us, not for us, but with us. These kids in the stores, these are, this is the secret weapon of Home Depot. You go to a Home Depot store, you expect an attentive kid, you expect a polite kid. I say kid, if you're under 83, you're a kid, I'm 83, okay? You, <laughs> you expect a kid today. that knows what he's talking about. That's what it's all about. I so went can- into Home Depot at 10 p.m. a couple nights ago, yep. desperate for one little thing to keep afterthoughts you know, things going, there it was. There it was. They had it. They had it. And the person you go up to, randomly, it's just amazing. It's got to be 99% of the time when I go to somebody at Home Depot, where is such and such? Aisle 7 in the back on that. Or I will walk, okay, you, so down, I will walk you down to aisle 7. They prefer to have them walk. That, that's right. They, and then they walk did down. walk me back yes. there. You I want to know, we're waiting for Cudlow at the White yeah. House with John Farrell. Ken Langone, how do you respond to President Trump who says immigrants are bad for us? Home Depot was built... And, and people that wanted to get up early from other nations and wear, the, that, wear that bib. I'm going to get a little excitement in this interview. He didn't say it's bad for us. He said if they want to come here, let them come here through an orderly, law, lawful process. That's what he said. My grandparents were immigrants. I can tell you right now, this country was built on the back of immigrants, including my grandparents. We're, we're a nation of immigrants. Every one of us came from someplace else yep. except for the American Indian. Guess what? We have, I'm glad you brought it up, mm-hmm. we have a national crisis in America, a big-time national crisis. Let's fix our laws that we can have an orderly way for all these people who want to come here to come here. How does the president then, someone you know well, how does Donald Trump... I, I, I know him well. I know he knows me. Okay. I know him. How does he change his rhetoric and discourse so he can meet the other side in the middle? Maybe he won't and maybe he can't. But guess what? Maybe it's his rhetoric that's driving these results. Look at these numbers this morning. 3.6% unemployment. 263 new It jobs. is amazing. No, how better than that? I can tell you as a businessman, the hobble of regulation in this country was staggering, and it was crazy, and it did nobody any good. Where are you on the minimum wage? We're up to $15 an hour. Does Ken Langone want to go to $22 an hour so they can spend it all at Home Depot? Well, I have one simple rule that I live with. Pay people what they're worth. Pay them what they're worth. Because if you don't, somebody else okay. will. Here's what we're going to do. Ken's going to take a pause. We're going to continue Go with ahead. Mr. Lango. We've got lots to talk about here on radio. He'll join us on Bloomberg Television as well. Look for a special podcast we're going to do as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.